0: The sermon text this morning is from Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness.
1: So my family and I have really gotten into watching the uh, Andy Griffith show. And I know, um, what does Andy Griffith have to, have to do with Paul? Just, just give me a second. Um, <laughs> uh, so in this, in this show, there's this, this lovable yet unique uh, character named um, Barney Fife. And one of, uh, one of Barney's traits, negative traits, is that um, if you kind of stroke his ego, uh, you can get him to say just about anything, um, even possibly even condemn others. Um, Just because you get his ego going, and he just starts talking, and he just doesn't stop. Um, This one episode, there's this young college girl who comes to to town, but she's really not a young college girl. She's actually an undercover uh, reporter, and what they want to do is uh, they want to get some dirt on the sheriff, uh, Andy uh, Taylor. So um, she begins to talk to Barney, and as she talks, she keeps pulling more and more uh, information out of him, uh, to the point where uh, Barney's basically shown that, hey, Andy is a bad sheriff, that he's actually evil. Uh, so much so that it's reported to the DA, and they have this this hearing, uh, and they bring Barney forward again and again. here you, They ask him these questions, and there he goes. He's just to the point where it seems like everything he said uh, has just convicted uh, Andy showing that he's evil. But then you hit kind of this pivot point in his conversation, uh, and it's almost like he just flips the script. He does exactly what you don't expect uh, for him to do. He actually pushes forward and shows that, hey, Andy is not evil. In fact, he's actually good, and he has a good function uh, to play uh, in this fictional town we know as Mayberry. And even in condemning, uh, Andy actually has a very good role to play because it's only by someone coming face to face with their sad, miserable state that they realize they need deliverance. Now, uh, will I admit, again, uh, Barney or the show has, uh, it pales in comparison uh, with the Apostle Paul and his argument uh, in this text. I think what you'll find in Romans 7, uh, 7-12, is that Paul finds himself, if you will, backed into a, a similar scenario of his own doing. Uh, it seems as if he's backed himself uh, into a corner because just in 7, 1-6, through he's talked about the fact that the law actually uh, produces sin. It exacerbates uh, sin. So in light of that, You ask yourself a question, which Paul is about to ask and hear in just one moment. So the law actually increases transgression, okay? Just to give you an example again, to get an idea of what this looks like, it's like when you tell your child, um, don't eat the crayon. Um, There's nothing particularly attractive about a waxy crayon uh, in your mouth. Uh, But what becomes attractive? is the prohibition. Uh, Don't eat the crayon. So all of a sudden, your child is eating this delicious uh, waxy crayon, all right? They may or may not have eaten it before, but all of a sudden that prohibition makes that crayon a forbidden fruit, and they got a whole mouth full of it, purple, green stuff, just all over the place, okay? The prohibition leads to transgression, okay? Sin, as Paul's gonna say, actually has a role to play in this equation, but Paul does concede that the law increases transgression. Um, So of course, Paul, as the good lawyer that he is, he expects the question that comes from this line of thinking already in Romans uh, 7, 1 through 6. And the question is, if the law actually increases sin, then is the law sin? Of course, for the one who wants to live free, from the law and free from God's uh, regulations, it's almost like a breath uh, of fresh air. But just before that person can take a deep breath, Paul responds with an emphatic, No way. The law is not sin. In fact, as is going to argue in this passage, the law is good and we need the law. For the law helps us to see that we are spiritually dead and we are all in need of God's salvation. And the way Paul will structure uh, his argument, he asked the question again uh, in 7a, He is the law sin? And the rest of that, from 7b to verse 11, is Paul mounting his argument for the reason why the law is not sin. And then he concludes in verse 12 by showing, so then. In fact, the law is not sin, is actually holy, righteous, and good, just like God the one from whom the law comes. So Paul will show in this passage that we need the law. We need it. It's good. And it has a good function to play in all of our lives, driving us to the only one who is holy, who is righteous, and who is good. And Paul will show us that now in his passage. So as you start here uh, in 7a, in light of all he said uh, previously, uh, Paul, of course, once again, I'll raise the question. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Of course it's not. No way. He responds emphatically, the law is not sin. No matter how much the law actually increases transgression, All right, there's actually a clear distinguishing mark between the law and sin. The law is not sin, but Paul will actually talk about Sin has a role to play with the law in that it corroborates the law. It takes it captive, if you will, to lead us into transgression. It actually hijacks the law to lead us into transgression. But Paul here will now expand on how exactly the law increases transgression and he will bring sin into the equation to show us its role in increasing transgression. Now, uh, in verse 7b, um, Paul says, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Okay, So here Paul admits that if it were not for the law, he would not have known sin. In other words, sin revealed to him that he transgressed uh, God's law. He, re- he transgressed God's law, and he was a transgressor. He knows God's righteous standard, and he knows that he falls short. The law shows him that he falls short of God's righteous standard of holiness, righteousness, and goodness, which Paul does not have. Uh, but who really believes this initially anyway, right? Uh, most of us think we're, we're good. We're just, we're pretty, we're pretty okay with the way things are going. I mean, who really believes that every inclination of the thoughts of our hearts are evil all the time? We actually have to be shown. We need some kind of external standard by which we can compare ourselves to show us that we are actually transgressors, that we fall short of God's holiness, of his righteousness, and his goodness. We need something, some standard to compare ourselves by. Um, here's just a few examples uh, that, we can, that we see daily to help us understand exactly what Paul is talking about In this passage, one you've heard um, before, Uh, the speed limit sign says 60, and we go 65. We have transgressed. Um, Here are some ones that perhaps uh, hit closer to home. Um, The sign, the sample section of the grocery store says uh, one cookie per customer, we take two. Transgression. Um, At the church picnic, we're told only two meats at one time, we take three, all right? It's transgression. The social media site says uh, no trolling. That's no harassing people uh, online. And of course, we troll, and sometimes in the name of Jesus for correcting someone's uh, doctrine, if you will. Even in these examples, we see that we fall short. We could use other ones. And like Paul, in this passage, the law sho- shows us how short we fall of God's righteous standard. In fact, in the next uh, next part of verse 7, Paul will now specifically show us an example from Exodus 2017 about coveting. Um, if you see here, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. So Paul here will use the example of coveting. And what he does now is he used flip-flops between coveting uh, and the law. Why? Because coveting actually functions as a representation for all the law. Coveting, if you will, it's this entry point into all other kinds of sins. In and of itself, it is sin, but it leads us into all kinds of other uh, possible sins. So that's why Paul can use it as representative of the entire law. Here are just some examples. When we covet someone else's reputation, we then end up possibly slandering and gossiping about them. When we covet someone's wealth, um, we may not end up reporting all our income on our taxes, or we perhaps claim tax breaks that we don't actually qualify for. When we covet someone else's spouse, we, sometime, we pursue them, even if we know we're going to blow it all. Okay? Coveting leads to all kinds of other transgressions. That's why Paul can use it as a representative for the law. And even here, we are all ready to start starting to see our wickedness, how far we actually fall short of the law. Coveting is a root for all kinds of sins, as Paul notes in this passage. And even here, we are beginning to see our wretchedness and how far we actually fall short of God's holiness, his righteousness, and his goodness. And now here in verse 8, Paul goes on to say, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. This is where Paul really begins to ramp up his argument. Um, He notes that the law itself is not sin, but sin actually uses the law. It takes what is forbidden, the commandment, to actually lead us into transgression. In other words, by Paul knowing the law, he knows what's prohibited. Sin yet Sin then uses that prohibition to actually lead him into transgression. So in light of what Paul says uh, previously, Paul now begins to really clarify his argument. If you're equating sin with the law, don't do it because sin actually hijacks the law to lead us into transgression, to violate God's holy standard, uh, his righteousness, uh, if you will. The law is good. It comes from God. It has a very good function to play, as Paul will continue to elaborate on in this passage. But sin actually hijacks the law to lead us into transgression. Again, we know we're not supposed to eat the waxy crayon. There's nothing particularly attractive about a purple or green waxy crayon, right? We're not talking about um, Willy Wonka's wallpaper here where the snozzberries taste like snozberries, right? Right, the waxy crayon tastes like wax, it's nasty. Uh, But what do we know? We know the prohibition. So we want to really eat the waxy crayon. Those of you who have have children or uh, you've been around children, you know exactly uh, what I'm talking about. We also see this experience, however, uh, not just in us and our our children, but it's kind of a general uh, human experience, if you will, in the Bible and outside the Bible. I'm going to give you a couple of examples, actually three We see in the garden, for example, uh, Adam and Eve are told not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There were lots of other trees in the garden, all right? There was lots of other fruit in the garden as well. Why that one tree? Well, God said, don't eat from that tree. And what does Satan do? He takes the prohibition to lead Adam and Eve to violate God's law, all right? Sin uses the prohibition, the law, to lead us into transgression. They had a whole garden. That one particular tree was so attractive because they knew the prohibition, and Satan used the prohibition to lead them into transgression. That's why they call it a forbidden fruit. Um, Many of you know who Augustine is, the church father. He wrote uh, The City of God. He wrote uh, The Confessions. You may have heard this illustration before. Uh, but Augustine, in his Confessions, he talks about his, uh, his sinful life uh, before Christ. And he and his friends, they used to go into his neighbor's yard, and they used to shake uh, the pear tree uh, in his neighbor's yard. They would shake all the pears they could possibly shake, and then they, would eat. they wouldn't even eat all of them. They would just eat a few. And throw the rest to the swine. Why? It wasn't that the pear was particularly attractive uh, to Augustine. I'm sure it was delicious. But listen to what he says about the pears. I only pick them so that I might steal. I love nothing in it except the thieving. It wasn't the pear that was attractive to Augustine. It was the thieving itself. It was the do not steal Aspect the prohibition and sin used it to tempt him to lead him into transgression to violate the prohibition. Um, our daughter Eunice, um, she's two years old. Uh, she's cute. She's she's lovely. She's great. Um, so we want to protect her um, often. So we're sitting in her room and we thought it'd be a good idea a, idea to tell her, hey, don't touch the socket now. Granted, the socket probably would not have become attractive to her if we wouldn't have said, don't touch the socket. The moment we said, we talked, we're like, yeah, I think we should think it's a good idea. So we said, Eunice, don't touch the socket. It's dangerous. It's bad, bad. And then she looks at us, looks at the socket, looks at us, and she's watching us as her finger goes to the socket. And we're like, do you see this? (laughs) I mean, it's just—it becomes so attractive to her. All right, sin uses the prohibition, the law, to lead us into transgression. All right, and this happens to all of us. It's the Paul here is describing um, the universal human experience in light of himself. Okay, and even with very good things. Again, I'm going to focus here on coveting, uh, which is what Paul is is honing in on. Even though it's representative. for the entire law, for example, um, we may even, we know we're not supposed to covet, but given our station, given where we are in life, our circumstances, uh, we may be led to covet someone else's marriage, which may seem ideal. Um, someone else's parenting, they seem like they have it all together, I promise you, once that minivan door closes, you see, in fact, it's not all together, trust me, um, where we are in life, maybe even coveting someone else's health, someone else's gifts, someone else's intelligence, um, someone may be well-liked and get lots of attention, they may have tons of social media followers, and we covet those things, all right? Sin uses the law, what is prohibited, to lead us into transgression, okay? Now, I want to be clear, because sin uses the law to lead us into transgression does not mean that we're not responsible. We are accountable for our sin. When we look at the law, yes, sin takes the, hijacks the law and uses it for its, his, its own sinful purposes. But in that hijacking, in that corroborating, we're going to see a very good function for the law in showing us who we are. And that is ugly, wretched, and sinful, and in need of salvation. But we are culpable, and even though the law is hijacked, we are culpable for our sin. We have transgressed the law. There's no way around it. We stand condemned, just like Paul, just like any other person throughout human history. And notice here what Paul says in 8, in the final part of verse 8, he says, apart from the law, sin lies dead, okay? It's like sin was dormant before uh, the law came uh, into existence, uh, before God gave it uh, to Moses. And all of a sudden, once it comes, it's like it took an adrenaline shot, poof, and it just, it comes to life. What was once seemingly lifeless just comes to life. It springs to life. What does this mean? What is Paul saying here? It means that before Paul encountered the law, you know, he really didn't know he had transgressed the commands of God and he, he stood condemned. He thought he was okay. He thought he was all right, if you will. But once the law came alive, once, it, once the law, once sin now came alive and it now began to use the law to lead Paul into transgression, it produced in him all kinds of transgressions causing Paul to see that he is a transgressor, a violator of God's very good commands, confirming there is nothing good in him. He is a transgressor. Paul could no longer flatter himself. He could no longer look in the mirror and think, hey, I'm a pretty swell guy. I am okay. There's a saying, right? You're okay, I'm okay, we're all okay. The law shows us we are not okay. And when sin came alive and used the law, all right, Paul realized clearly he is not okay the law shows us all that we are not okay we come face to face with who we really are when we look at the law sin hijacks the law but we still see a very good purpose for the law here's a a quote from uh john calvin this is what he says um about this passage We must ever remember that he, Paul, speaks of inebriating confidence in which hypocrites settle while they flatter themselves because they overlook their sins. Okay, Paul has no more room to flatter himself. He knows when he looks in the law that he is a transgressor. He comes face to face with who he really is. And frankly, he realizes it's ugly. The law does that it shows us we are not swell, we're not okay, none of us is okay. We have a sickness that's rotted us to the very core which the law being used by sin exposes, showing that we in fact are spiritually dead. And even though, again, sin hijacks the law, we see a very good function right here in the law, leaving us us dead, right? Uh, So who's going to give us life right it's certainly not the law certainly not by by legalism if you read verse 9 i once was alive apart from the law but when the commandment came sin came alive and i died right it's not by legalism as much as the jews believe the law had life giving power okay it actually has no power to grant us life okay it actually condemns us it shows us we have no life the law has no power on its own to give life. Now, I'm not talking about fruits of the Spirit, right? We should all seek to to please God by the influence and leading and direction of the Spirit, okay? What Paul's talking about here is obedience, law obedience, as a way to life, which no one can obtain, because when we actually look at the law, we, we realize, like Paul, that we are transgressors, and we are Dead, meaning spiritually dead, and in need of life that comes from someone, something else. Because on our own, we've got nothing, and we're not. Okay. Now, in verse 10, Paul goes on. I mean, ideally, if we kept the law, right? Ideally, hypothetically, we would have received eternal life. But that was never God's intention. But it seems to be what Paul had in mind when he said that, if you read here, through the commandment, sin deceived him and killed him, i.e. sin, just like Satan deceived Adam, even the garden, by thinking they would have life if they would uh, eat true life, real life, right? If they ate of this fruit, sin deceived Paul into thinking that, hey, he could actually keep the commandment, he could keep the law, and he would have life. But instead, it killed him. He realized he was Dead. Dead. If you, if you want an epitaph for this, uh, you could say something like, here lies Paul, dead, right? Here lies all of us, spiritually dead. Um, but don't feel sorry for Paul. Um, it's actually a good thing, as Paul's going to show. This is a good function uh, of the law. Here's a quote from James uh, Montgomery uh, Boyce. He says, as long as Paul thought he was doing right, he was on his way to perdition. It was only when he learned he was lost that he was ready to hear God's words about a savior. Sin shows us who we really are, okay? How often in our lives, uh, before Christ, for example, or others um, who perhaps don't know Christ, do we think, hey, life is good, I've got a good job, I've got 2.5 kids, life is pretty swell, they're relatively uh, well-behaved, at least when I'm watching them, um, I give some money to church. I come every now and then. Life is pretty good, I'm okay. But guess what the law does? It cuts right through this self-righteousness, exposing, and in fact, we don't have life. We're not okay. We're actually doing very, very badly, so badly that we are spiritually dead and in need of life that comes from someone, something else. We have to look beyond ourselves. Because the law exposes who we really are. So now in verse 12, Paul comes full circle, if you will. He says, So then. So in light of everything he's said so far, he's proved, hey, the law is actually not bad. Sin uses the law to lead us into transgression. But even in that, we see the law's very good function, all right? And here it is that the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. We see in the law when we stare at it, when we see we're condemned, that we are spiritually dead, we see that we are not holy. We see that we are not righteous. We are not good. And what does that do? It's supposed to drive us to the one who is holy, the one who is righteous, the one who is good, Jesus Christ. We see ourselves rightly in the law. All attempts to prop ourselves up Up are exposed. There are no fairly decent people who attain life. They too are dead. We all fall short of God's expectations in the law. Our only hope then is to be driven to Christ. Um, John Gerstner was a professor of uh, church history at Pittsburgh uh, Theological uh, Seminary. And uh, once he was preaching on Romans and he was talking about uh, the law and after the service, uh, a woman came to, to speak with him. And this is what she said. So I'm going to read this verbatim. After the service, when he had gone back to the church, a woman approached him. She was holding up with her index finger and her thumb about half an inch apart. So just like this. All right? And she said, Dr. Gerstner, you make me feel this big. Gerstner replied, but madam, that's too big. That's much too big. Don't you know that that much self righteousness will take you to hell? True, just a little bit. All right? The law cuts right through that, showing we have no righteousness in and of ourselves, driving us to the only one who is holy, righteous, and good. So, where do we stand uh, in all this? We can just. We can begin to think about some possible implications. Are we the one who has never really looked to the law? We think we're actually pretty good. The law cuts right through that. You're actually not. Just take coveting, right? We've all desired something that's, um, that's not permissible to us or belongs to something else or someone else, uh, or perhaps wanted that thing more than we actually want. God, there's no one who is pretty good. Are we looking to the law to try and make ourselves righteous? Paul showed that killed him, all right? And you too are dead as soon as you look in the law. Because again, we've all coveted. We've desired something that does not belong to us, belongs to another. Not to mention stealing, lying, and all kinds of a host of other sins the law mentions. We're dead. For the Christian, what are you using? What, what, what aspects what things in your life are you holding on to uh, that make you feel perhaps just a little bit more righteous uh, than your neighbor? Um, is it perhaps that you have a good job, a good status in life, um, things are okay for you right now? Um, Maybe you're, you're, you lead something, you're in charge of something, I mean, you're a person of esteem. What are you using now to prop yourself up? Because there's no one, there's nothing we can use to prop ourselves up to make ourselves more righteous in God's sight. Again, the law cuts through all of that showing that none of us is righteous and our only right standing before God is for the one who is holy, righteous, and good, Jesus Christ. Okay, I'm gonna come back now uh, to um, to the Andy Griffith show. You've probably heard more Andy Griffith than you, you'd like to, um, but it's actually Andy has a very good function uh, to play uh, in this uh, in this show. It's almost when you look at Andy and when you look at and when you look at um, at Barney. Barney's like he's the, which, which you don't want to use the lottery to, to keep people down, condemn them, kind of rub their nose in it. But Andy, if you will, when he does throw the book at someone, you see the very good function uh, in the law, if you will. And there's this one episode where there's this young, young kid riding through town and he's speeding and uh, Barney pulls him over and he tries to pay off Barney. I mean, this kid had gotten... Everything he wanted in his life. Uh, His dad was very influential. His dad had never really really thrown the law at him, if you will. Never held him accountable whatsoever. Brings him in. And actually, uh, Andy realizes something about this kid. And he throws him in jail and he leaves him there over the weekend because it wasn't until Monday or so that he could actually have a hearing uh, and try him. So he leaves him there over the weekend for days. There are people who come in on the part of his dad uh, who try and get this kid uh, out of jail, but Andy leaves him in there. He lets him be exposed uh, to his family as well. And somewhere along the line, as this kid is in jail, Uh, he's in captivity, if you will, he's come face to face with the law, he realizes something. He realizes he is ugly. He realizes he's wrong. And there is this transformation that he is driven to, okay, because the law shows him he is ugly, He is not righteous. He is good. And by the time he walks out of there, it's like he walks out transformed. It's like he walks out changed. The law that Paul is talking about, it has a similar function, okay? It shows us when we look at it, we realize that we are transgressors. We are not good. We are not righteous at all. We realize, like Paul, that we are transgressors spiritually lifeless. We've got nothing, nothing at all. So we are left with nothing because we have nothing. We are not good. So that leads us then to be driven to the only one who is holy, who is righteous, who is good, Jesus Christ. As we look at this passage, what should we do? We don't look to the law, we look to Jesus. And in Jesus, we are loved, we are accepted, and we are right before a holy God. Let's pray.